Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, ranging from nutrition to physical and mental health. I am Amanda Hayes, your host, a nutritionist with a passion for well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I would like to take a moment to let you know that you can subscribe to my podcast, which includes interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical health, mental health, and my five-minute food facts series. You can subscribe on YouTube, hit the red subscribe button, or on your favorite podcast app, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. I will also mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure, or prevent injuries or medical conditions. And it is not a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today, I am here with Sam Alfred. Sam and I have been friends since our university days, and Sam is an emergency medicine consultant working in the emergency department of a very busy hospital, and he is also a clinical toxicologist. So today we are going to focus on his role as a toxicologist, and particularly we're going to talk about snake bite something which is of interest to any of you listeners out there who like to trail run, hike or ride mountain bikes. Hello Sam and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast. Howdy. It's great to have you here. Thank you for coming in. Don't leap to conclusions too soon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I thought we'd start by asking Sam about his path to becoming a doctor. So what inspired you to study medicine? Uh, lack of viable alternatives. <laughs> I, I started off thinking that I wanted to be a uh, diplomat uh-huh. and started doing Asian languages and, and heading towards law and then realised I was no good at law and I had no natural diplomacy skills at all and had to come up with something else. So medicine was uh, mm. you know, an interesting fallback plan. Oh, I think that sounds like a good plan. Yeah, it worked out well. A... I'd have been a terrible lawyer. Yeah, well... <laughs> I think you've got to get out of jail free card there, Sam. <laughs> well, as it turns, you, know, you just don't know, do you? When you're seventeen, you but uh, I landed on my feet a little bit, I think. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And then you studied in emergency medicine, which I would imagine is one of the more stressful specialties. So, what drew you to that? Well, actually, it's quite fun. Um, it is. I guess what drew me to it was the variety and the procedural aspect of things, and the fact that you're involved in the nitty gritty mm-hmm. kind of dirty is the wrong word but the um yeah. you know the difficult periods of people's lives which is kind of nice to be able to help yeah. people through and yeah. often the people we're seeing don't have a lot in the way of community supports and other avenues to mm-hmm. medical intervention so it's quite satisfying right so you're, you're actually really making a difference well you feel like you're yeah. right. i don't know well if, you know, i guess keeping someone alive <laughs> well, we'll do that satisfaction to that yeah <laughs> yeah yeah mm. Is there a lot of follow-up care with these patients? or Zero, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not a diplomat. Exactly. <laughs> and one, one of Sam's many talents, apart from diplomacy, is that he has set up a toxicology department um, here in Adelaide. So first of all, can you explain to us what, what is toxicology? Well, it's the management of 
poisonings and envenomations, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, most of what we do is, is managing um, well, self-harm, overdoses, mm-hmm. and um, most of that's with sort of pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. uh, that people have taken to try and harm themselves. Um, and we manage snake bites, spider bites, um, chemical exposures. Right. Uh, that sort of spectrum of toxicity. If someone comes in um, into the emergency department and they've taken some kind of toxin, I'm not sure what all the correct terms are, um, do you then, um, what if, if they're non-responsive, how do you then know how to treat them? Um, well, you, it's relatively, well, I, I guess you look for the clinical signs mm. that might support a diagnosis. I mean, m- most of what people take is what's readily available to them. Right. So generally it's prescription drugs. And mm-hmm. you know, if you're talking specifically about prescription drugs that make you unconscious, there aren't a whole lot oh, that okay. actually do that. And the ones that do have, you know, take, for example, oxycodone, you know, an opiate type thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, has a characteristic set of signs that right. go along with it. And it slows your respiratory rate, makes your pupils small, okay. um, slows your heart rate down, causes a little bit of a drop in your blood pressure, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can there's an antidote to it, so you can give a little right. test dose of that, and people will respond or not respond if you if you're treating the right thing. Right. So um, it's a bit of a um, process of matching probabilities with clinical mm. signs that yeah. support that, and, and and interventions that work or don't work. <laughs> yes, and hopefully work. Yeah. And I'd like to focus today on uh, snake bite as one of your areas in the toxicology department. Because a lot of our listeners are either trail runners or hikers or mountain bike riders. So they're spending time up on the trails where you're obviously more likely to come into contact with a snake. First of all, when is snake season in Australia? Well, snake bites are more common in spring and summer. Mm-hmm. Um, spring um, is their breeding mating season. Right. Um, so they're out and about and on the prowl. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're much more active in the warmer weather. Right. Cold-blooded animals that right. kind of need heat yeah to so get them going. they'll be lying on the path or the yeah. trail or something mm. Mm. and is i guess this ties in very much with the previous question but is there a time of day when you're more likely to be bitten by a snake well i guess the times at which you're likely to run into a snake are the times at which your behavioral patterns coincide with the snake's behavioral right. pattern so you know in the early part of the day the try that snake's trying to warm itself up and mm-hmm. get moving and and so it'll find somewhere nice and sunny to sit and mm-hmm. that's when people tend to be, you know, post-school drop-offs and the rest of it going yeah. out for a run. So yeah. I, I suppose that's probably the most likely mm-hmm. time point. Um, you know, once there's been a whole bunch of people through a trail, snakes are pretty good at avoiding humans. Yeah. So once a few people have gone through, and particularly dogs and things, mm. um, have gone through and have laid a scent trail down, then the snakes are pretty good at staying out of the way right. from that sort of time okay. point on. Because they don't want to come into contact with No, they with really don't want to. Yeah. Go. They'll do everything they can to stay out of your way. Right. Okay. And at night time, are they, do they sleep or what do they do? I don't know anything about snakes. <laughs> well, I should say I'm, I'm not a herpetologist, so, you know, I'm not <laughs> Didn't a... Didn't even I'm, know what, what that word was. <laughs> a snake specialist. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I guess what I manage is the bit from the fang onwards. <laughs> but um, So I'm not a particular expert in snake behavioural patterns, but th- and there are diurnal variations mm. in the way snakes behave you know some of them are out and about during the day tiger snakes um, brown mm-hmm. snakes those sorts of things other ones are more active at night time mm. 
um, mulga snakes and things, for okay. example. Um, so there are differences in behavioural patterns right. amongst the different species of snake. They hunt at different right. times. So you're never safe. That's what I'm hearing. They're always out <laughs> They're there. They're always out there. Well, you're actually pretty safe in Australia. Yeah. We yeah. actually don't get, despite the reputation mm. of our snakes, we a, don't get all that many bites, and B, get mm. very, very few deaths yeah. um, you know, compared to our Southeast Asian yes, of course. kind of neighbours. Yeah. In fact, I read somewhere that um, we get about two deaths a year in Australia. Yeah, that's about mm. right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, our snakes get a particularly bad rap. I mean, the, the reputation for snake, Australian snakes as being particularly deadly is a potency-based argument. Mm. You don't need much venom to cause a, right. a, a, an effect. Um, but often our snakes bite and don't inject venom at all right yeah um and our medical supportive care is pretty good mm, um, we have right. good anti-venom uh so you know the chances of actually coming to significant medical harm post snake bite are pretty small in australia mm, that's very comforting for australians out there mm. um so what are the most common snakes that well the single mm. most common ones the brown snake the brown snake yeah okay. definitely i mean the, the the most common venomous snakes are the brown by far and away the most common tiger Taipan, Death Adder, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. Mulga snake, and red belly black snakes. So okay. that, they're sort of the big ones in terms of venomous species. We have sea snakes in Australia in the north as right. well. Right. Oh, in the north. Okay, mm. good. We're safe. Yeah. Um, I don't like the cold water. <laughs> I guess those ones that you mentioned, they're the most common venomous snakes, you said. So yep. in terms of um, if one should see a snake, what what's the best course of action? Well, if you just stand still the snake's yep. going to go away is that right um, they're mm. really not going to bite you unless you, you know, tread on them inadvertently mm. or, or startle startle them up very close mm-hmm. um and if you give them any chance to move away they will they're not ever going to attack you right okay so stand still yeah um don't try and beat them off with a stick or something like throw that. throw them to your friend or yeah. <laughs> use them as a lesson no no <laughs> If you have the misfortune of actually getting bitten, say you don't see the snake, you step on it, and in defence it bites you, what's the best way to deal with it? Uh, well, essentially the best thing you can do is stay as still as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, Obviously, you've got to balance that up against where you are and how likely it is you're going to be found. But mm. um, snake venom initially is injected underneath the skin. Snake fangs, Australian snake fangs anyway, um, are very, very small, and they don't create deep puncture wounds. They mm-hmm. create sort of scrapings and, right. and very shallow injections of venom into the skin and the subcutaneous tissue. And the initial spread is through the lymphatic system mm-hmm. and venules, very small um, components of the vascular system. Uh, and spread through those systems is promoted by muscle contraction and movement. Um, oh, so if you stay still, um, there's no muscle contraction, no mm-hmm. movement, and the venom tends to stay at the bite site for much longer and if you put a compression bandage around it Mm -hmm. and occlude those lymphatics and small um, venules then you slow it even further right and australian snake bites for the most part um perhaps with the mulga snake being the exception don't cause local toxicity so all of their toxicities once it's made it into the bloodstream and disseminated to a Mm -hmm. distant site of of action like the kidney or Mm -hmm. nervous system um so if you trap it in the limb you don't have a problem okay yeah unless you're seven hours away from right help. Yeah. yeah which hopefully for most of us that's not the case mm. what are the typical symptoms then well the typical symptom is absolutely nothing is that um, right that's right Pain? yeah no they don't no? tend to hurt again they've got very small fangs and right. at most they tend to feel like a scratch 
Okay. Um, a lot of people don't even know they've been bitten. Oh, really? Yeah, they're really not. Local bite-site pain is really not a feature other than with mulga snakes mm-hmm. and death adders, which have larger fangs mm-hmm. and, and in case of the mulga snakes, some local toxicity. But we don't have those immediately around the Adelaide Hills right. region, so it's not particularly a problem for us. And brown snakes, tiger snakes, taipans, um, they tend to cause very little in the way of local bite site pain. Um, and about 50% of snake bites don't have any venom injected. Um, right. So a significant number of people will never get any systemic mm-hmm. effects by virtue of that. Um, and the people that do, um, if they're going to get any symptoms, tend to get a fairly non-specific mm-hmm. uh, set of initial problems like nausea and vomiting and abdominal right. pain and just feeling horrible. Okay. Um, so it's not a particularly specific set of mm. findings. If you are bitten by a snake and you know that that's happened, how do you know then whether you've had venom injected or not? You don't. You don't. Okay. So you should always go. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, the process of demonstrating, medically demonstrating, that you haven't had any venom injected is quite a long one. Oh, Um, I see. It it takes us about 12 hours to definitively rule it out. Right. um, Because we're looking for evolving changes on serial blood tests and evolving Mm -hmm. neurological signs on repeated Mm -hmm. examination over the course of the first 12 hours or so. If you've got through the first 12 hours without anything occurring, um, the chances are you're going to be absolutely fine. Right. If you are bitten by a snake and venom has been injected... Is there a universal anti-venom or do you need a specific one for each type of snake? Uh, well, we do. Australia makes a polyvalent antivenom. So there are polyvalent and monovalent mm-hmm. antivenoms. And polyvalent antivenom is an antivenom that includes sort of one dose of antivenom for each of the Australian snakes of significance. Right. So there's one dose of taipan, tiger snake, brown snake, mulga, um, mm-hmm. death adder um, in there. Um, so you can use that to treat everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the monovalent uh, antivenoms are targeted at, at a particular species. So it'll only work for brown snake right. if it's brown snake antivenom. It'll only work for tiger snake if it's tiger snake antivenom. The advantage of using the monovalent ones is they're a much smaller volume mm-hmm. and adverse effects are directly volume related. I so see. we tend to ideally try and use yeah. the mono, in preference the monovalent antivenoms, yeah. which you can usually do by working out what sorts of snakes are around the vicinity where the patient's yeah. been bitten and coupling that with their symptoms and signs and the mm-hmm. results of their blood mm-hmm. tests. So, yeah. um, and there is a venom detection capability as well um, if you can get a sample of the venom. Okay. And I, I also read somewhere that um, you should uh, you know, not try and wipe any venom off, for example, because sometimes it can you can identify it from traces on your clothing. And is that correct? Around the bite site. Yeah, this is the venom detection I think mm. you're, you're talking about. There's a, there's a venom detection kit made by Sequiris who, um, uh, and the, the aim of that is to guide anti-venom selection. So it doesn't directly... So the process is that you you take a swab of venom, usually from the bite site. You can do it on urine, but it's much less accurate. Um, and you look at a thing called an ELISA assay, which is an mm-hmm. immunoassay that generates a color change in response to the presence of venom and tells you which antivenom would be most appropriate to treat that, that venom. Okay. It doesn't actually tell you whether the patient needs it. I see. Mm. Um, and it isn't always right. 
Right. Um, and it's probably fair to say that the reliance on that over the years has, has reduced substantially as people get more and more familiar with what snakes exist in a given territory and, mm-hmm. and how to diagnose the envenomation syndromes clinically. Right. Oh, that's, yeah, that's good to know. Just moving on, Sam is involved in a project in Myanmar, a snake bite project. And I believe that's supported by the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade um, in partnership with the Australian anti-venom producer Sequirus, the University of Adelaide and the government of Myanmar. I believe this is part aid focused and part research, this project. So what's the aim of the project from a research point of view? Well, the the research was, in fact, a spin-off. Our involvement there was, was entirely in terms of its funded um, funded activity it was entirely an aid program. So, I see. Yeah, so the Myanmar government asked the Australian government for some assistance with um, the management of snake bite in Myanmar and specifically with the management of a specific snake. They've got a, a huge problem with a snake called Russell's Viper mm-hmm. over there and, and through all of Southeast Asia, really. But um, Myanmar have a, a very significant problem there, particularly in terms of the ability of this snake to cause renal failure. Um, oh and they have an enormous load of patients who require dialysis to treat renal failure secondary to Russell's Viper bite. So uh, the Myanmar government asked us, or asked the Australian government for some assistance um, in the management of snake bite, which the group that you've identified um, helped to provide. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially what that was, at, so that was a Myanmar snake bite project was the, the term of the, the project. And what we were doing was, looking at um, management from the point of anti-venom production right through to anti-venom administration and clinical management. And um, most of the the real success we had was aimed at um, increasing volume of anti-venom production and quality of anti-venom production and improving their cold chain supply mm-hmm. um, support for the antivenom through to the point of administration and and eventually creating a lyophilized antivenom which is a freeze-dried antivenom which doesn't need a cold chain at oh, all brilliant. so most of the real impact we had was around those sorts of manufacturing processes and um, and setting up an audit tool which doesn't sound very sexy or exciting but was actually very effective because they had very little information about the numbers of bites and where they were presenting right. and how they were being managed mm. and what the consequences of that treatment was. So we were able to set up quite a, a an advanced audit tool um, that allowed them to, to map what was happening in terms of snake bite within a couple of high prevalence areas and, and profile their, their treatment approaches and identify which, which bits were working and which bits weren't. Well, that sounds um, like a, a really good result. Yeah, mm. and and then that led to you know, research questions that spun off the side of it. Oh, that see. wasn't part of the funded arm of the, the right. project. Right, so it was an aid project, yeah. as you said. Um, when you talk about production of anti-venom, is that um, locally, as in, in Yeah, they've, they've always made their own anti-venom. Right. Um, the problem with species like Russell's viper, and it's true of all snakes, but snakes that exist across a, a broad geographic terrain tend to have varying venom components throughout that terrain Mm -hmm. because they're eating different things and and so they need to kill different things and so they generate over time different um sort of subtly different venom components um and what that means is that an an anti-venom made in another country doesn't necessarily work for your snake even though it's the same snake and and the renal failure issue 
in in Myanmar is a, is essentially a Myanmar specific manifestation of Russell's viper envenoming that you don't see very much in oh, other I countries. See. So they had been buying antivenom from India um, and finding that it wasn't really working. Right. Um, and then they had been making their own, but weren't able to manufacture enough to meet their requirements and were having quality control issues mm-hmm. and so they had you know um industrial needs to try and right so that's why you that came process. in yeah. yeah um in terms of renal failure if uh the snake bite is treated on time with the correct antivenom then i assume it doesn't progress to that stage well unfortunately not oh um, that's a shame yeah now what we were able to demonstrate through the audit process that we'd put in place and was that giving antivenom early clearly made a difference to the number of people getting renal failure but it didn't completely reduce the risk to zero by a long by a long shot there's still very very significant numbers of people getting really renal failure so it was protective to some extent if you got it early but Mm. not 100 percent protective and that raised a whole lot of questions about things like dosing and efficacy mm. Um, mm. and that's where the research sort of components of the, yeah. of the issue come into and play. I wonder is there sufficient dialysis machines in Cambodia? Well historically no Myanmar? historically no and you know tragically they had previously found themselves in a situation where they could offer people a fixed number of dialysis sessions um, typically about three and that oh, okay. that wasn't enough to get them no. through the envenomation syndrome so um Historically, they were in the very unfortunate position of um, being able to partially treat with a suboptimal antivenom and then initiate dialysis for a defined period of time and then found themselves having to withdraw that care because it was no longer funded and, and the right. local population just can't afford to pay it for themselves, obviously. No. That situation had resolved itself before we got there right. and the Myanmar government had put quite a lot of money into improving dialysis resources and they are now and and had been prior to our arrival able to support people with dialysis through the duration of the envenomation induced renal failure which for most people is about two weeks a little bit less Um, so they recover from it that's most people do yeah yeah there are quite a large chunk of people who who don't and are then dialysis dependent for the duration of their lives unless Mm. they get a transplant Mm. um and obviously transplants in Myanmar are, are problematic yeah i can imagine um well, Sam, it sounds like your group uh, is doing some really good and valuable work over there, so that's that's great. And then if we just uh, wind up with a couple of questions about working in a busy um, emergency department. Uh, so what's the most common, I think you alluded to this in the beginning, but what's the most common sort of issue you see in terms of um, toxicology or drug overdose um, in, in an emergency department? Well, I suppose... Broadly speaking, there are three different uh, groups of poisoning. So, mm-hmm. you know, leaving the envenomations aside for the moment, and and that you could broadly group them into deliberate self harm, where mm-hmm. people have taken an overdose to, with the intent of killing themselves mm-hmm. or harming themselves, and that's usually in the Australian setting prescription drugs. Right. Um, and then there's another group of um, quite a large group of people who present as a consequence of um, recreational drug use. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a third quite small subset in the Australian setting of people who've got chemical exposures usually in the workplace oh, or things like that. Um, so, yeah, it's the intentional overdoses and the recreational drug use are our two, by far our biggest groups of patients. And we see about a 1,000 patients a year at the Royal Adelaide with those sorts of problems. That's oh, I quite see. quite a lot of people. Oh, that is a lot. Um, and what's the most 
in terms of recreational drugs, what what would be the most common drug? Do you think out alcohol? There? Alcohol, yeah. yeah. Um, and and you know, in the context of the emergency department, it's not alcohol to the point of intoxication. It's alcohol to the point of unconsciousness, oh, violence, right. aggression. Wow. Yeah, that is by far and away our biggest problem. Mm. Um, yeah, that's interesting because if you if you read the media, you would assume it would be ice. You that would, gets a and, lot of coverage. yeah, and the the um, methamphetamine is the single most common illicit drug that we see, um, but ethanol, so alcohol, is mm. at the same sort of level, and um, benzodiazepines and prescription opiates are not that far behind. Right. So you put together our socially acceptable, if you want for want a better term, mm. family of drugs: alcohol, benzodiazepines, and prescription opiates, and that that's much more of an issue um, numerically than methamphetamine. Um, yeah, right. methamphetamine patients do tend to be difficult. Yeah, you know, they tend to be violent aggressive. and aggressive and yeah. and not terribly pleasant. So they they create a large footprint. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and it's it, quite disruptive. And it a, I imagine. Yeah, definitely, yeah. and it and it is a it is a very significant problem. Mm. I, I guess with. Um, as you said, socially acceptable drugs, they're, they're, they're easier to get hold of. So yep. um, mm. it's more likely that a greater number of people will be exposed. And there's also a social tolerance for the outcomes yeah. associated with it. Mm. You know, we do, you know, regrettably, quite frequently see fairly young people who found themselves in very precarious situations and, and the response of family members, if the cause of that's been alcohol, is often a little bit unusual. There's okay. a... There's a an acceptance of it as being, mm. oh, well, it, you know, she was just drunk or mm. he was just drunk. Um, and you don't get that sort of tolerance with methamphetamine. No. You know, people, if you're behaving poorly and methamphetamine's the cause, there's an intolerance of the right. outcomes of that behaviour. Whereas I think as a society, for some reason, we seem to be relatively okay with poor behaviour if it's caused by ethanol for some reason. Right. Hmm, interesting. Alcohol intake is definitely a social problem in Australia and perhaps a subject of another podcast. Well, it's good to know that we have some very capable emergency doctors out there available to look after us when we uh, p perhaps take the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or get bitten by the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> so Sam, thank you for coming on today. And I, I like to finish the podcast by asking all my guests if you could recommend two things that you think people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? I was kind of dreading this question. Oh, you don't, I'm, I'm you don't not, have to answer. I'm not much of a social philosopher. But maybe <laughs> don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah, yeah that's a good one. <laughs> do something interesting. I don't know. I don't have any great pearls, but mm. uh, some vague... Don't get <laughs> vague bitten guys. by Don't avoid... Yeah, don't don't drink too much thing. alcohol. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Sam. Pleasure. Thanks Bye. for having me. And that was Sam Alfred. To put Snakebite into perspective for you, in 2018, before his death, Kofi Annan said, Snakebite is the biggest public health crisis you have likely never heard of. Every year globally, Snakebite kills between 81,000 and 138,000 people. And it also causes long-lasting disabilities in another 400,000 people. With prompt access to the right anti-venom, snakebite is rarely fatal, but in countries without strong health systems and anti-venom stockpiles, every five minutes someone dies of snakebite and another four will be permanently disabled.
Recently, in May this year, the World Health Organization launched its roadmap, which aims to halve the death and disability from snake bite by 2030. So let's hope that that is a successful program. You can subscribe to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button, and while you're there, click on the bell to be alerted when new episodes are available. You can also subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Direct links to all social media can be found on the subscribe page of my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. If you would like to contact me, you can send me a message via the contacts page on my website. Please feel free to suggest topics you'd like to learn more about or guests you'd like to hear interviewed, and I'll do my best to deliver that to you. Finally, please take a minute to leave a rating on iTunes. It improves visibility and will inspire me to keep finding interesting guests in the wellbeing space. Thank you for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.